This morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Judges. Um, We've got a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 17, 18, and 19 this morning. And then Lord willing, we'll wrap up the book of Judges next Sunday with uh, the last two chapters, 20 and 21. And that's going to lead us right into Advent season. So that'll be perfect timing for us to focus on uh, Advent and the season of Advent and all that comes with that. So as we get started, and and as you know, we've been studying the book of Judges now for quite some time. Um, I think it's been over six months now that we've been working through Judges. Sometimes we take a more like street level approach where it's like every little detail in the story and sometimes we've zoomed out and done more like uh, satellite view. This, this morning is going to be kind of that satellite summary kind of approach. Um, and I, there's reasons we'll, we'll get into in a second. But just to kind of recap, chapters 1 through 16 of the book of Judges whether you know it or not, cover about 410 years of history. 410 years. So we've been on a a journey together through the book of Judges, chronologically speaking, for 410 years. That's amazing. None of you look that old. (laughs) If you remember that, uh, biblically speaking, a generation is, is about 30 years 410 years comes to about 13 and a half generations. Over the the course of our study, we've seen this uh, cycle that the Israelites have struggled with. That starts with apostasy, turning away from God. To where the next step was that uh, God would surrender them to, you know, serving the Canaanite king of Israel. His choosing. To which, after so long of this uh, slavery, if you will, the Israelites would cry back out to Yahweh, and then God would redeem them with a judge and save them. Last week, well, two weeks ago, last week was missions conference. Two weeks ago, we, we finished Samson, which was the last and final judge, the twelfth judge. So you would think we'd come to the end of the Judges, because there's no more Judges. And yet, there's five more chapters. It's important to remind ourselves that uh, this spiral, this, this, this cycle has been going on for 13 and a half generations. Because it wasn't like they returned to where they were. They kept going deeper and further and further away. Even though God was bringing them back with the judges, they were still further than they were when they started, when they first entered the land. And so for 400 years, Israel's been, been slowly spiraling away through apostasy from Yahweh. Even though God sent 12 judges to rescue and save them from their enemies and to draw the Israelites back to himself, they never quite came all the way back. And and we see that as soon as every judge died, 
they did evil again. And it continues and continues for 400 some years. And this morning, we're going to look at what life looks like after that type of time and spiral. The last five chapters of Judges are some of the darkest and most difficult stories we see in the entire book. And we've read some difficult ones. We've read some difficult stories that are hard to understand, and yet these are darker and harder. We see that with the 400 years and the 13 generations of leaving God, leaving Yahweh, Israel has found themselves in a dark place spiritually. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, it's been a week. It's been an emotional week. It's been a draining week physically as well. But Lord, you are sovereign. You are good. We trust you. We have your word. We have your spirit. We have your son. Thank you. Lord, as as we come to your word, let us come with a posture of humility and, and openness to receive the transformation that you have for us, Lord. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just simply be data that we enter into our brains or information that we download, but Lord, that we would understand what your word has for us in in a training and equipping, transforming way. Lord, we know that all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training up in righteousness. So even in the hard passages and even in the darkest places of your word, you have a purpose for your people to train them, to equip them. Give us eyes, Lord, to see. Help us to wrestle with your word in that sense, Lord. And may you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we come to Judges 17, and we see a story about Micah. Now, this is not the the prophet Micah. This is a, a different Micah. And we see this story about Micah and the Levite. And uh, it's about 13 verses long, so I'm just going to read through it real, well, slowly, quickly. Uh, We'll read through the 13 verses together, and then we'll kind of summarize what happens here. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. 
So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he had made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he, as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest." Chapter 17. In this uh, chapter, in the first five verses, we see this uh, dialogue between Micah and his mother. We see that uh, Micah actually steals a large sum of money from his mother. And through a course of events, after she had uttered a curse and came to his ears, maybe confronted him about it, he said, yeah, I've got the money. Here it is. It's back. I give it back to you. So Micah really isn't the greatest of guys. Like he, he, he stole money from his own mother. And I think what we see here is that uh, with Micah and his mother, we reveal the level of apostasy among the people, or re- the family relationships. The darkness, the spiritual darkness has come down into the family. In verse 6, uh, well, she says, before I get to 6, you know, she, let, let's, let's look at this relationship between Micah and his mother because she says, after he comes to her, she says, blessed my, uh, be my son by the Lord, Yahweh. So, there's clearly some recognition of Yahweh. But in the very next action, she dedicates silver to Yahweh to make a carved image. And we go, what? (laughs) That's clearly against God's law. It's against the commands. Do not make a carved image. But she clearly believes she's doing something right. Because she's, she says, Blessed be my son by the Lord, Yahweh. I dedicate the silver to the Lord, Yahweh, for my son. She's acknowledging Yahweh. She, she's dedicating money to Yahweh. And in that dedication and, and in everything, but her practices... Reveal something's off. We 
We don't know whether the practices were taught to her or if they were handed down or if it was just because of the way the culture was impeding in on her faith. But clearly this is not, this, this, this practice of fashioning an idol is clearly against God's law. But for whatever reason, she thinks it's the right thing to do. Which is interesting because it stood out to me because I think if we, if we just read what's here, I, I really do think she believes she's worshiping rightly when in fact she's sinning by breaking his law. And then we see that Micah then takes the image uh, into his house and there we find out not only does he take an image, he has a, an entire shrine and an ephod, which again, the ephod was the priestly garment, right? The, the, the high priest garment. And household gods, a very pagan practice. Not only that, he then goes on to set up his own priesthood by ordaining his own son to be priest. And one might scratch their heads and say, what is going on? And then we come to verse 6, and we find out, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, for 400 years, the Israelites have had let the pagan culture around them influence their belief system, influence their practices of worship. And each cycle of apostasy allowed more of those practices to enter into what they would practice. It defiled true worship as God had ordained it through his law. But because it's been done this way for so long, they don't recognize that it's wrong. This is just what it's been. And we see this, this bit here about the Levi and verses, uh, the Levite in 7 to 13. We see that, you know, what we need to know about the Levite is, if you remember, Levites were the set-apart people that were to work in the tabernacle. They were, uh, some of the Levites were priests. Most of the Levites were scholars and teachers. They had a special role to play. They were set apart to God. At this point in history, in Judges here, at this point we need to understand that a Levite was primarily responsible for teaching the people the law. I don't think they're doing a great job, right? They're not holding people accountable to the law anyway. And here's a Levite that's wandering and sojourning. And that makes sense because Levites didn't have a land of their own like the other tribes did. Rather, they had these 48 cities and the pastures, uh, according to Joshua 21. But what's interesting to note that Bethlehem was not one of the 48 cities. So what's this Levite doing in Bethlehem? Why is he sojourning there? 
We don't know. But what we do know is that he was living and sojourning in a place he wasn't supposed to be. And then this opportunity is presented to him to become a priest. Now again, remember that, that all Levites were called to teach the law. Some Levites became priests. So not every, not every priest was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. Okay? And so he gets presented with an opportunity to become a priest. He goes, that sounds pretty good. Not only does he get the opportunity to become a priest, he gets to become a personal priest in a house with a salary and living, you know, quarters. That sounds like a pretty good gig. And so he takes it. But as a teacher of the law, he should have known he had no business accepting this offer. See, when things are spiritually dark, you make concessions. You start looking the other way. You start going, hmm, well, could I get away with that? I think so. And then we see that Micah believed he would prosper because he had a personal priest who was an official. He was a true Levite. And so he felt like he got an upgrade kind of kicks his own son out of, out of being priest, and he goes, I got, a, I got a Levite. Now I'm official. Now we got something going here. Now we should understand here that uh, this uh, Micah's house thing, we often probably think of like just a home, right? But uh, the better understanding is probably think more like a hotel. So this is like a resort kind of kind of idea here that, yes, it's Micah's personal home, but he has added on to his home to create a space for visitors to come and visit. He's got a shrine. He's got a place of worship. He's got all these household gods, and he is kind of a business owner mentality. Think of it more that way. And now that he's got a true Levite, he thinks he's going to make it big because now he's official. Now, now he can start promoting that he's got a true priest. And I think I see here in this, in this story with Micah and the Levite, I, I, I see a warning. I see a warning to the church. All of our traditions, all of our practices must come straight out of God's word. Not by what's been passed down to us, not by what we think we've been taught in the past by previous pastors and teachers. Everything we do, we must test by what God's word says. We have to. It's called evaluation. There are many traditions in the Big C Church that have been passed down and passed down and passed down that Scripture doesn't support. That you can't find a cause or a reason in Scripture why that's being done. And so we, as the church, we must look at God's word and discern if our practices and our traditions line up with what his word says. 
Otherwise, we run the risk of making those concessions and thinking we're, we're doing right because it's been passed down. If you haven't noticed yet, not being raised in the church, that's kind of my M.O. <laughs> I take a look at everything we do and go, why are we doing that? Where did that come from? What's the, what's the reason behind it being done that way? And can I defend doing it that way from Scripture? And if I can't, it's going to change. If I can't see a defense from Scripture for, for what we do, how we do it, we're going we're gonna to take that seriously because I think it's important. So that's Judges 17. We see this brief story between Micah, his mother, and then the setting up of this household priesthood, if you will. And we go to 18. This chapter is a little bit longer. We won't read all the way through 18. But what we see here in, in chapter 18 of Judges, we see the tribe of, the, of Dan, the Danites, um, looking for land. We, we, we see that they never quite took hold of their inheritance the way they were supposed to when they moved into the land. Whether they wouldn't or couldn't, we don't really know uh, for certain. But uh, they've been, for the last 400 years, without their inheritance, their land. And so we come to Judges 18, and they're kind of fed up with not having their own land. And so they send these five scouts from the tribe of, of Dan to go search out a space that they might be able to claim for their own, to claim their inheritance. In verse 18, and, and what we see in, in summary with, with chapter 18 is now we see, you know, at where, we, where we zoomed in on the family, and we see the apostasy and the corruption in the family. We zoom out now. Uh, we also saw it with the religious leaders, because that was the Levites. I forgot to mention that part. Now we're zooming out even bigger to a tribe, the Dan, the Danites, right? So we started real small with the family unit, then religious leaders, and now we're at uh, a tribe of people. Israelites, by the way, a tribe of Israel, the Danites. And we see that the apostasy, the apostasy is even there even in a tribe. And verse 1 echoes what we heard in chapter 17. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. In those days there was no king in Israel. And so the Danites, searching for their inheritance or a place that they could call their inheritance, they send out these five scouts. And these five scouts are searching the land, and they, they come across Micah's house. Remember, Micah's house might be more accurate to say his hotel, his lodging area. So it makes sense that they might have come across there, maybe even to lodge there and rest there. But while they're there, they hear a familiar voice, the Levite. And they ask the Levite, they, they say, what are you doing here? Why, why are you here? 
You're, you know, because they know, the, the familiar voice means they know who this person is. They would know that he's a Levite. And they might be a little confused as to why a Levite is here. And so the Levite shares. He's like, Micah's been good to me. He's paying me wages. And this is a pretty good gig. I'm a priest. Like, I, me? I'm a priest. Like, yeah. I feel that way sometimes. Not quite that in that vein, but they, and so they have this conversation. They find out while he, why he's there, and a, after that, they, after they find out that he's being treated well and he's been hired as a priest, they say to him, well, if you're a priest, inquire to God for us. Inquire to God whether the mission we're on is going to succeed. They say, inquire of God, please, please, that we may know whether the journey we are setting out will succeed. To which the Levite says, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord, Yahweh. Notice, he doesn't like affirm that they'll be okay. He just says, go in peace. Your journey is under the eye of the Lord. That's almost ominous, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like it's not like go and you'll, you'll be victorious. It's like go, the eye of the Lord is on you. Which is interesting because this doesn't necessarily mean that God approves what they're doing but rather that God is watching what they're doing. Application two. What I see here is that we have to constantly be reminded that all we do, whether we are walking with the Lord or not, is under God's purview. He's always watching. Reminds me of the monster. Always watching. Right? Yahweh sees everything. The Lord sees everything. Even when we're not walking with him. Even when we're in rebellion to him. He still sees everything. And we should be aware of that and take note. So these five men, they receive this uh, warning, I guess, uh, is how I would take it, but they receive this answer, and so they, they continue to go on and continue scouting. Verses 7 to 10, we see that the scouts find a remote city called Laish. And uh, upon finding this remote city, Laish, they, they realize that the people there are pretty unassuming. They're pretty chill. They're not threatened by anybody. They've got good fortifications. They've got everything they need. In fact, they're pretty prosperous. It says that they lacked nothing that is in the earth and possessed wealth. They were quiet and unsuspecting. So after getting the report and after scouting this this 
this remote, and we find that it's also quite a ways away from, you know, their homeland protectors, if you will. And so the scouts go, I think we could conquer this city, and they would never get help in time. Like, I think we could do this. And so the scouts come back to the tribe of Dan, and they report Yeah, we see that they're unsuspecting people and they lacked nothing. In other words, they were pretty comfortable. And this led me to another application that comfort and prosperity can lead us to be caught unprepared for spiritual battles. We live in a nation that's been blessed by prosperity and comforts when we look at the rest of the world. We look at reports out of Zambia, just having clean water coming to my house is a comfort that people in the world don't have. Most of us haven't really been, most of us have never really had to test our faith the way other Christians in the world have. Are we ready for what might be coming our way? And I think this ought to be a wake-up call. We know the world's going to be going this direction that we see in Judges. Are we, as Christ followers, prepared? Or are we going to be caught unaware? See, because the city of Laish, we're unsuspecting. We've got our fortifications. We've got everything we need. We've got comforts. We've got wealth. We've got prosperity. We've got everything we could ever ask for. And yet, the tribe of Dan comes in and destroys the entire city. No help on the way because they were too far away from help to, be, to come. And the Danites not only destroy and burn everything, they rebuild it. They rebuild the city. And they rename the city Dan. Getting ahead of my slides here. But on their way to uh, conquer Laish, on their way to destroy, they make a pit stop at Micah's house. And at this pit stop, they, they talk to the Levite priest. And they say, hey, we got a better gig for you. You like to work for money, right? We'll pay you a lot more. The better for you to work for one man's house or a tribe. I think I've heard that similar temptation before in the book of Judges. The better that you serve one man or many men or one, right? That's uh, back with, um, I should have had this, it's just there. One of the judges previously it's okay. Thank you. Abimelech. There we go. Abimelech. Sounds very familiar. Levite goes, wow, that, that, you make a good point. You make a really good point. It'd be much better to serve an entire tribe. Yeah. And pride filling up the Levite here. And so they, they take the Levite priest but they don't just take the Levite priest. They take everything in the shrine. They take Micah's Levite. 
They take the carved image, they take the ephod, and the household gods. And along the way to destroy Laish, Micah finds out that he's been robbed. And so he goes to confront, and he calls, the, calls his buddies, and they all come to confront the tribe of Dan and realize there's no chance we're winning against this army. And uh, they, Micah goes back home with nothing. And then the Danites destroy Laish, rebuild it, and call it the city of Dan. But they don't just stop there. They also set up their own line of priests. And we see that it actually says that they set up Micah's card. If you look at verse 31, they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. See, to this point, there's been a place to worship for Israelites at Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's tabernacle is is, is set up in Shiloh. So there's a place for the Israelites to gather to worship Yahweh. They're not interested in that. They're setting up their own places of worship, their own images to worship, because there's no king in Israel, and everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. In this tribe, the Danites decide they're going to set up their own priesthood as well. Chapter 18. Then we come to chapter 19, and things just get worse. (coughs) Things just get worse and a lot darker. And I I have this warning here because what happens in chapter 19 is just really hard. I'm going to do my best to censor, but not withhold. We come to chapter 19, and we come across another Levite, a different Levite. But it starts off in in verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Are you catching a pattern? Are you seeing any correlations here? There's no king in Israel. The Levite and the concubine is what my uh, Bible heading is for this chapter. And uh, if you remember, a concubine had rights, um, was like a wife, but primary, didn't have the full rights of a wife, and primary purpose was to produce children for the family. That, they, they were above being a slave, but not much. And so we see that this Levite, this new Levite, not the same Levite of Micah, a different Levite, goes and takes a white, uh, excuse me, a concubine. And we find out that she's unfaithful to him. And while she's unfaithful to the Levite, 
he goes to, or excuse me, she goes to her father's house for four months before the Levite finally says, you know what, I'm going to go get her back. And we're summarizing here, okay? And so the Levite, after four months, decides to go get her. And he arrives at the father's house where she's staying. And then he's welcomed in and coerced or tricked or whatever the case might be, ends up staying five days in the house before being able to finally leave. On the fifth night uh, was also being coerced to stay. Just stay another night. It's, you know, now I know you wanted to go, but now it's getting late in the day, and just, just stay one more night. And, and the Levite says, no, I'm done. We're leaving. We're going home. And even though the day is waning and getting longer and, and darker, maybe it was daylight savings time and it was really only 5 o'clock, I don't know. The reality is it, the father felt like, yeah, just stay. It's better to just stay. And he says, no, we're leaving. And so the Levite, his concubine, and a servant leave. And they're on this journey. And they come to what is known as Jerusalem, um, but at the time wasn't called that. And they pass Jerusalem, and they keep going. And they come to a, a town called Gibeah, which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And I should remind you that being, a tribe, being the tribe of Benjamin means that this is Israelites. Okay? Tribe means that they're Israelites, they're fellow Israelites. And so they go into town, and nobody, and it's probably getting pretty late at this point, and nobody will welcome them into their house. No hospitality. Which Jewish custom was if somebody needed a place to stay, you opened your house. That was just part of the culture. And yet, the culture has been so dark spiritually. Nobody's opening their house to a family in need. And so they sit in town square, right in the middle of town, where everybody could see them, probably out their windows, and they sit there until an old man comes in from the field, from, probably from working. And he comes in and he sees them sitting in town square and he goes... Where, who are you and where are you coming from? And why are you sitting in, in town? Why are you sitting? And they say, nobody will take us in. And he says, well, I got a place. You can come stay with me. And so they, they gather their things. And, and even the Levite says, we've got everything covered. We, 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 we have the feed. We have resources. We just need a place to sleep. And the old man says, that's fine. You come stay with me. And so he invites them in to stay with them. And the account of what happens next, the account of what happens next is despicable and just pure evil. And really echoes what we see all the way back in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. And parents, I'm going to do my best here. 
what ends up happening next is these Benjaminites, these Israelites, come banging on the door of the old man's house. Bang, 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 bang. We saw that woman, no. We saw that Levite. We want him. Send him out here. They don't ask for the woman. They ask for the man. These men ask for the man. And they're banging the door down. Israelites. They say, send out that man that we might have our way with him. And the old man says, don't do this. This, this is evil. This is abomination. Don't, don't do this. And he pleads with them. He even, the old man even says, don't do this wicked and vile thing. And instead, the old man offers the evil men his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine instead. Because that's less evil, apparently. But the evil men had no interest in the women. Had no interest in, in the women. And they said, no, we, we want the man. Bring out the man. Bring out the man. Bring out the man. So finally, the Levite grabs his concubine and forces her to go out the front door and shut the door behind her. where she gets abused all night long. To the point of death. Because in the morning, the Levite opens the door to find her clutching the threshold. But no life is in her. Levi opens the door as if no, no big deal, you know, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, just, a, you know, my concubine laying on the, on the threshold, and he says, get up, let's go, it's time to go. She doesn't move. And so he picks her up, puts her on the animal, and they go back to his house. Takes her home, takes a knife, divides her into 12 pieces and sends her all throughout Israel. And you're, you got a pastor who's trying to be sensitive. <laughs> but you read something like this in God's word and you go, what is this? This is pure evil. Why would I have this evil to read? It makes you sick to read it. Or at least it ought to. And it makes us ask the question, why do we have such horrific historical accounts in the Bible? 
and I'm reminded, 2 Timothy 3.16, it's there for a reason. We are responsible for finding out why. God wants us to know this happened. Why? If his word is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and training in righteousness, why does a story like this exist in his word? I think it's because God allows us to see just how evil our hearts can be when we forsake him. God's chosen people, Israel, had forsaken Yahweh for 400 years, over and over and over and over again. And God allowed, not permit, not, 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 excuse me, God didn't put a stamp of approval on what happened. But just as Romans says, he gave them up to a debased mind. And this is what happens. And I think it's a sober reminder to remind ourselves how much the world needs Jesus. Because this same thing happens in the world today. The pornography industry is around sex slavery. A high percentage of what men and women watch in pornography are slaves. Stolen in sex trades to perform and be recorded. When we forsake Yahweh, when we forsake God and we, and we, and we become king, we have the same propensity to do exactly what we see in this word, in this story. And I believe that that's why God gives us these very difficult things to read, to remind ourselves, this is what happens when you leave me. This is what it looks like when God's people fall away and God allows them to have their way, not because he approves of it, but he allows it because he allows us to choose. God gave them the moral law. They had the law, and as they were entering into the promised land, Joshua said, keep the law in front of you. Remind yourselves of it daily so you don't leave Yahweh. 400 years later, this is where we find Israel, God's chosen people. It's not up here because I didn't think about it until right now. That's another point to make. The moral law never produces morality. It hasn't. We see it in, clearly in Scripture. They had the moral law. Just because it was there doesn't mean it produces morality. It 
God raised up, they wouldn't listen to the law. They chose not to. God raised up judges and rescued them from their enemies 12 different times. Yet they wanted other gods of their own making. Because they were their own king. Because there was no king in Israel. They were their own. Three times we see in these three chapters, in those days there was no king in Israel, 17.6. 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. 19.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Why, do the, why does the author make such a point that there was no king? My friends, the gospel's about a king. The gospel's about a king. We see, we see that after Judges, after, after these you know, next two chapters, we see that Saul is, is born and raised, uh, excuse me, Samuel, and then Saul comes along, and the people say, we want a king. We want an earthly king. And so God allows them to have an earthly king, and Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And then comes David the good king, and and David unites the kingdoms into one kingdom, Israel. David then dies, and and Solomon takes over. And then after Solomon is done, the, the kingdom of God divides again into two kingdoms. And there's many kings, and mostly bad. Until one day, See, God had a plan from the very beginning that there would be a king, that he would be king. And he revealed through the book of Judges and through the people that there was actually a king, Yahweh. But they didn't want that king. And through history, we see God had a plan out of a chosen person, Abraham, to create a people Israel, that out of Israel would come a redeemer king. His name is Jesus. That not only would redeem Israel, but the entire world. Jesus, King Jesus, left his throne in heaven to be born as a baby. Live a perfect life. Sinless life. Though he was tempted in every way as we are was without sin, took our place on the cross, dying a death he did not deserve, taking your place and mine, died, three days later was, excuse me, died, was buried in a tomb, sealed by a stone, heavy stone, and three days later rose again, victorious, because death can't hold our king. He ascended to heaven and he sent out the church to say, go and make disciples of all nations because I'm in charge. I am king. And there will be a day when this good king comes back. 
And the reality is, for all who would believe and profess through repentant faith that Jesus is Lord, must understand that not only is he Lord, he is now king of your life. He's king. There can't be two kings. There's only one. Is it Jesus or is it you? Because Jesus says, I'm king. Only I am worthy to be king. Because I paid that price. See, Israel, Israel, we, we see these horrific stories, and they were searching for a king, and in that, this darkest part of Judges, we see three times, in Israel, there was no king. Because they wouldn't submit to the king. And they did everything, as 17 says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So who was actually king? Them. And we have the same problem today. If we want to see the world changed for Christ, we have to follow a king who's leading his people in his kingdom into the dark places to set captives free by following a good king. And he calls each one of us to play a part in that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of your word, even though it's hard sometimes. Jesus, you are our king. You are the good king. You rule justly with love and grace and mercy. And there is coming a judgment day for each one of us, for the entire world, where we will find out who's truly king in our life. But I pray that anyone listening, either in person or online later, who's yet to surrender their life to the only king worthy of being in charge, would do so. Because there's coming a day that we draw closer and closer to where we will stand before the king and have to give an account. And for those who stand before the king, who are who are rightfully in his kingdom come with nothing on our own but the blood of Jesus. Not by anything we do, not by anything we've done, not by who we are, not by who we know, simply because we've surrendered our life to the king by being washed in his blood. So that when we are seen, God sees him, his son. The gospel is about a king. And that's good news. Lord, we, we admit that we, we live in days that are confusing. 
that seem to, to echo what we see in Judges a little bit, even a lot. Lord, I believe that you're calling your church, the, the true followers of, of your son, to not hide, but to be light and salt, knowing that we have a king who's in charge. Help us, Lord, to go into our communities, to our circles of influence, whether it's work, school, play, neighborhoods, families, with Thanksgiving this week. Give us opportunities, Lord, to be light and salt so that there might be new family members to the king. Not so that we would receive any honor or glory, but that Jesus' name would be lifted high and glorified forever and ever. And all who agree, say, amen. God bless you this week.